because a lot of podcasting was audio only, people thought, well, it's it's like radio. All you need is is you know performance uh, licensing, and that's that's not true. It's it's exactly like film that that we've all learned. You know, in time, it's kind of developed to the point to where you have to sync music uh, from a licensing perspective with podcasts the same as you do film or television. Uh, so, you know, helping helping people navigate that that was one of my big goals. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Mac McIntosh. My next guest is a music supervisor and film producer based in Dallas, Texas. He spent over 20 years in the entertainment industry with additional experience in music clearance, music licensing, film distribution, and more. He's the founder of MusicClerk.com, a music and audio agency that provides music supervision, music clearance, post-audio editing, sound design, and music composition for their film, TV, podcast, and video clients. He also has experience helping filmmakers and production companies secure distribution for their projects. His name is Mac McIntosh, and I'm looking forward to taking a deep dive into the world of music and how important it can be to the shape of a project. Mac's perspective on this will be a golden opportunity to understand a bit more about the inner workings of this fascinating field and how it might come into play in your own content creation. As always, if you have questions for my guest, you're welcome to reach out through the links in the show notes. And if you have questions for me, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com, where you'll find lots of ways to get in touch. Plus, subscribing to the newsletter will let you know when the new podcasts are available. And now, without further ado, here's my interview with Mac McIntosh. Well, first off, thank you very much for coming on the show, Mac. I really appreciate it. We've been waiting a while, too. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for having me. It's 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 been a good wait, though. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. We've been talking in Clubhouse a lot, so <laughs> that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Lots really going on it. there. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I wanted to ask you to start off if you had an early memory of sound that moved you. I like to ask this of everyone that I interview because I get really interesting answers and I'm curious. <laughs> Absolutely. I think probably the earliest for myself would be in film and in, in movies mm -hmm. and and oddly enough or funny enough with uh, the cartoons that I con consumed and watched as a child. I always think about things like the uh, the, the actual uh, cadence and, and the sounds that went into things like uh, He-Man right before he changed from Adam into He-Man and kind of that whole little dialogue that he went through. Uh, it's probably some, I remember those, yeah. <laughs> probably some of the first memories that I can uh, conjure up that really had a lot to do with what was going on with the sound, what what was going on with the dialogue, but but also the music played a big part of it too from the dynamic standpoint for me. I think I think that was something I really grabbed onto or at an early age and, and realized that it does affect you in ways that you don't even realize a lot of times. Maybe that's something that uh, kind of drew me to music early. I'm not sure, but 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 definitely that al along with getting a little bit older and getting into, uh, you know, a little bit more serious about the types of films that I watch and that I 
uh, enjoy in my, in my early teen years, hearing those soundtracks and hearing how a certain piece of music could actually work in connection with the script or, or with what the character's saying. Uh, a lot of times, you know, kind of recognizing even back then that that music cues can truly kind of drive the story in a way that it can either be right on the nose with what someone's saying uh, from a character standpoint in a film, or it can add a, a little bit of variance to it, or it can even be very vague in how it kind of talks about the overall theme of the film, or sometimes even the title of the film, depending on what the song was written, who it was written by, what what the kind of direction it was. So, so I'd, I'd say from an early perspective, those two ideas would be the, the two most memorable or that stand out to me. Yeah. And I mean, I was going to ask you how you got into music, but, you know, you just explained it. <laughs> so yeah. it's all there. <laughs> I literally remember the, the first time this was kind of a test here in the States that, mm -hmm. that they I think it was third grade, fourth grade. I, I don't remember. They bring in the recorders, the little plastic flutes. And they, oh, they, yeah, they want everyone to try, quote unquote, try them out. Uh, you know, and, and everyone's trying to play, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb or whatever the case may be. You know, it's just making a lot of noise, basically. Uh, but that was kind of that early test. And I think maybe a year, a year later, maybe this within the same year, you also get to take the audio test where can you tell the difference between, uh, you know, two different tones or can you can you tell the difference in a beat versus a tone? Uh, and that was an early kind of, you know, uh, movement toward seeing if you want to be a part of band, see if you want to, if you want to take music appreciation, music theory, you know, early on. Uh, and fortunately it was optional. So I decided to do it. And so that, that was kind of my early, early educational side of music, you know, really, really getting into it from that perspective. Sure. So you were part of band. Was that, yeah. that was, was part of your, okay. Yeah. Not, not throughout my entire school career, but definitely uh, kind of our junior high or middle school years were when they allowed us to first start truly start so i think seventh eighth grade i was i was definitely there i started out with trumpet which uh to my to my parents uh uh you know that's not, not an so easy instrument enthusiasm you're right practicing yeah. trumpet inside a house for a few hours each night is not <laughs> not a parent's you know fantasy for their child. my parents and your parents probably had the same experience i i played the french horn <laughs> There, there you go. We're both we're both just nailing the brass instruments on a yeah. nightly basis. There you and, go. And then I got braces, and that was not oh, wow. that was oh, wow. not going to work with umbrature. Right, right. Oh well, oh well. But I, I have to imagine you got a little better at it. A, li a little. No, I, yeah. I, will, I, I will not exaggerate. It was not a lot, but I was able to. You know, obviously, th it was a big help on the theory side. Sure. That that led toward me really having a love for music and finally telling my mom, hey, I, I really don't want to play this uh, trumpet anymore. I, I'm much more interested mm -hmm. in guitar at this point. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah. great. We'll, we'll get you guitar lessons. That lasted a little for, quieter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. A lot a lot less um, uh, disruptive. We'll say that. Yeah. Especially acoustic. That's what I started with. So no mm. amplifiers, no craziness. So I started with lessons of that for about three months maybe and mm -hmm. the guy was very structured in the way he taught and i just didn't really uh vibe with that even as a kid not from an authority standpoint just from a learning mm -hmm. perspective it was much more visual uh my father he played some showed me my first three chords and the rest is history i've been playing for like 28 years now oh wow that's fantastic 
that's <laughs> a it's it's a harder instrument i think than people realize you know like it's it if you're really going to be good at it it takes a lot of practice absolutely so, absolutely yeah, yeah if you that would I was just going to say that would definitely help you with the music theory, too. I mean, just understanding how notes relate to one another definitely. is really important. And chord, stru- chord structures, or as, as the quote-unquote pros call it, triads. You know, the, <laughs> yes. These are the yeah. things that uh, you, you learn early on and, and start to have sure. an appreciation for. And oddly enough, as I got into the more commercial side, it, uh, or when I say commercial side, when, when I got in growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, Mm. trying my best to get into some of these really nice recording studios and do anything, you know, from a music standpoint. Uh, It taught me early on the difference between, and I would say it compares to life, you know, with education, you're taught a lot of things throughout school. Not a lot of it always applies in the real world, especially in business. Uh, The same can be said for music. Theory is a wonderful thing. It's It's a very good starting building block point for any musician, regardless of what their instrument is or, you know, what their their goals are. But by it, if you take a commercial music approach as a musician, especially in Nashville at that time, uh, it's not necessarily that needed because there's a whole system in Nashville called the Nashville number system. that They use at all the studios. And I don't want to go too far in the wrong direction here, but Basically, the Jordan airs uh, many, many years ago in the 50s, long story short, and, and if anyone hears this and I'm getting it completely wrong, forgive me, but the story is, is a couple of those guys couldn't read music. They didn't know theory. So instead of trying to read notation, they came up with a number system to where they could write charts. And the, the genius idea behind this system, the Nashville number system, is regardless of what key signature the song is in, the chart always works. One is always the root. So you it could be in any key and the chart's still relevant. So the, very useful. Yeah. That was something really, really cool that that I learned early on as well in, in my early mm-hmm. teens and really appreciated, you know, a new way of thinking about music that those guys came up with. Yeah, definitely. That would be really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and and good to know, I guess, so that people who read music and who didn't read music could be on the same standing. One hundred percent. A drummer, yeah. a guitar player, a bass player, anyone, even a mm-hmm. singer could come into a studio and be able to follow the chart with a very, very basic knowledge of structure and theory from a theory standpoint, but still be able to know what key, what chord, what's happening in the song. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio branding strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up, though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that, too. Now, back to the podcast. 
So how did you progress from being a player to music licensing and music clearance and all of that stuff and working for like film distribution for them and, and the music in the, involved in that? How did that all progress? <laughs> that, that, was, that was kind of a forced effort. <laughs> what, I mean, <laughs> what I mean by that is also growing up in Nashville as, and being a guitar player, you quickly realize there are, I wouldn't exaggerate, I don't think when I'd say at least a thousand other guitar players that are uh, either better or a lot better than you are. Uh, there was a, at the time in the, in the mid nineties, in the late nineties, there was this group of musicians uh, similar to what's known in the kind of the LA music scene many, many years ago. These, the guys in Nashville were called the A-Team and they played on all of the big country records, you know, whether it was Faith Hill, Tim McGraw, Alan Jackson, whatever was going on back then, they played on all of those. Uh, so there was really no chance for too many new guys to get spots within that unless they're filling in or, or somebody just can't play. So, that was kind of that that's the mountaintop. If you're trying to be a musician in Nashville at that time, that's where you were trying to get from studio perspective. Or you go out on the road and you you're part of a live band and for for some artist, you know, or up and coming or major artist. So realizing that and and knowing that I probably wasn't willing to put at least at that age, willing to put in the amount of time and the the 10,000 hours as I say to to be, to become that level of musician, even though I loved it. I saw an op I saw I already had interest and I saw an opportunity I should say to kind of start moving over to the business side of the industry uh, and anyone who knows anything about songwriting or the business of music knows that that's definitely the the more lucrative side uh, so even for artists you know artists some artists back then made great money but still publishers made a lot better money back then yeah yeah uh, so it's uh just seeing that opportunity, I, I kind of dove headfirst into the world of un better understanding copyright. And this was all self-taught, uh, truly, truly starting to build early, early relationships with some of the songwriters organizations like BMI and ASCAP from a business perspective, being a small independent publisher that really wasn't even a thing back then, but starting a small independent publishing company and, and really starting to understand how to bring songs into a catalog, how to do things like clear them with the organizations, as well as all the other administrative stuff that goes along with publishing, like pitching the song, trying to get it cut. Back then, there was there was no opportunity for for digital media, you know, for a song because it didn't exist yet. But certainly, pitching and uh, uh, you know trying to get it cut with with a, an actual artist was was very much the focus. Uh, so, so kind of moving through that realm <laughs> and, and still being in Nashville at the time, my wife and I, we met in 1999. Uh, she had spent many years here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, uh, attending school at the University of North Texas. She was uh, very familiar, had a lot, had a lot of uh, relationships here, both uh, kind of a, a family relationship as well as just good friends. And I was ready for a move, and, and I asked her, I said, if you had a choice, she's originally from up north in West Virginia. I said, if you had a choice, would you rather go up north, back kind of back home for her, for her, or would you rather go south back to Texas? She's like, no question, Texas. So literally three months later, we picked up and moved. <laughs> we decided wow, to move to okay. Dallas. Yeah. And so that was kind of a starting over point, especially mm -hmm. on the music side of things for, for myself, because it was not... Uh, 
the industry is nowhere near the same, obviously, when you move away from a large entertainment city like Nashville into to Dallas. Dallas is huge and amazing, and, you know, it's it's got a lot of great qualities and a lot of not-so-great qualities like most cities, but the music scene's not the same, you know. It's a huge difference. Slowly but surely, I started to kind of rebuild, you know, what I wanted to do with music from a business perspective. And that led into a f- fairly short but semi-extensive uh, stint as a music blog owner and operator. Uh, we I th- interesting. <laughs> I owned a I owned a live music review blog called Good Bam Show for quite a few years, and we, oh great! We had writers and photographers that covered for us in the Dallas Fort Worth area as well mm-hmm. as as well as in Nashville simultaneously. And we did a lot of a lot of cool, fun interviews, including myself. I interviewed a lot of artists over the years, got to know quite a few of those artists, uh, obviously got to know the labels really well and, and the PR teams behind those artists. So that's, that, nice. was, that, was, that was a fun little journey that made absolutely no money, but it was, it was a great- <laughs> Oh, I feel you. I was, definitely feel you on great, that. It was a great experience. Uh, it, I, I won't say I won't say zero money, but practically zero money. Yeah, and that that gave a lot, lot of opportunities, opened a lot of doors, built a lot of network working opportunities. Uh, and then along the way, I, I did I worked with quite a few different f- f- uh, companies from kind of a contractual standpoint that were entertainment based, music based. Did a lot of business development for those guys. Uh, started utilizing a lot of those relationships I had built up over the years mm-hmm. uh, and running the blog and, and also leaning back on a lot of my relationships from Nashville. And Actually, if I could ask you a quick question, because yeah, I'm just absolutely. curious about something. Um, when you were speaking with those well-known artists, mm-hmm. did you happen to hear from them any specific thing that was kind of consistent across the board for as many people as you spoke with about what they attributed their success to. I'm really, I'm curious to, to hear from, from them when mm-hmm. you were interviewing them, was there a consistency in how they got successful? Any consistent thing that they were doing or not doing? <laughs> I think just determination. I know that's kind of a vague answer, but. but uh, it makes sense, actually. Certainly but... the industry, any part of the inner entertainment industry is so difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to recall if I ask any questions similar to that to any of them at the time. Uh, I do know some stories, uh, not not directly from the artist, but just kind of from a PR perspective of how the artist, you know, came about, you know, mm-hmm. what it was that the moments that kind of broke them and the things that worked for them, you know, is on a, on a larger scale. But yeah, I think just determination and just willing willingness to not give up. You know, I think that was yeah, that's the biggest thing, uh, it, especially for some of the artists I was that I that I was interviewing at that time. They were right on the edge of starting pre digital era, and then kind of mm-hmm. becoming successful during the digital music movement. So that's uh, that was an interesting time. And uh, there were, if you think back, there were a lot of artists that especially that were not necessarily tied to major labels that started to really gain momentum uh, when social media became, you know, a force uh, in the early 2000s. Well, it kind of became the universal lever, like, you know, um, yeah, it was kind of like a, um, it made everything possible. It was like, you didn't have to have tons of money to get out there anymore. It was like, you could 
put yourself all over social media and it was mm -hmm. so new at the time that everyone was looking at it and yes. you could make a name for yourself pretty easily. So yeah, universal leveler is kind of what I wanted to that, say there. That's a great but, term. That's a great term. It was because the algorithms had not reached a level that everything was, you know, kind of suppressed and you had to spend money in order for it to be seen like it is nowadays. Yeah. Uh, it was very organic and real back then for, from a true so kind of a social, uh, you know, perspective or social media kind of concept of what they were really doing early on. So yes, that, that was, that was a huge part. And, but seeing things in real, uh, you know, it was all new to us as well as, as consumers or as, as you know, viewers and listeners, seeing live performances on video clips in your social media feed was something that we had, that raw and that real from an audience perspective was something that you just didn't see on television you know it was always so polished and so perfect this if if the singer hit a bad note if the guitar player missed missed the lead you saw it it was real there was no yeah. stopping it and still to this day that's true but i think it's a little bit more protected nowadays as far as the yeah. way the media comes out. But, but so, so all of that, I would say to, to, to try and best answer your question, I, th I think that's, you know, the, the determination and, and really not, not being willing to give up would be the most consistent thing that I remember. Yeah. And definitely like that was the time when Napster was just starting up. So, you know, then you have that whole deal. Right, <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. I mean, I remember all of this because mm -hmm. I kind of did a, a sort of website blog the same time you were doing it. I think the Muses Muse started in 95. Mm -hmm. So, and it went until 2016. So I saw the whole thing That's go great. down. <laughs> like great. it was, yeah, it was really quite something. And mm -hmm. now it's happening with movies, Yes, you know? So uh, it, it's just uh, technology ever marches on, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Who, who knows what, you know, we're gonna face within the next 10 to 15 years uh, yeah. from, from music and entertainment perspective, as far as technology goes. I know that we're all dealing with a lot these days, so I really wanted to acknowledge those that have gone out of their way to leave an honest review of this podcast. Like Sargent, who writes, Healing with Sound. This episode is so good. I'm glad that Jody featured this topic on her show. I've been really wanting to learn more about healing with sound. Thanks, Sargent. That's definitely a topic I'm interested in, and I'm sure there will be more episodes about it in the future. I really appreciate your listening. And for those of you that are interested, you can also leave a voice review now off of the main podcast page. It's super simple and fun, and I'd love to hear what you think. Now back to the show. Well, it certainly has become very hard for musicians to make a good living at this, you know, yes. I, uh, unless they're really diligent about getting their stuff out there and licensing, which is, I guess, mm -hmm. again, where you come in. <laughs> and, and along the way, I've, I still haven't kind of got to that point. How did I get to mm -hmm. licensing and, and clearance and, and sync? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, we'll get there. We're, we're getting there. We're like in the middle <laughs> of the two, middle of the 2000s at this point. So, so we're, yeah. we're almost there. <laughs> So about four years ago, I I started dabbling with the idea of, hey, there needs to be a service that it kind of helps uh, not only the artists, but also the uh, film industry really have, have an option to clearance and supervision that's not something to where they're permanently attached to it. And what I mean by that is a lot of supervisors 
they either live on the film side or they live on the music side. You've got supervisors that work for large publishing and, and record label catalogs, and that's, they, that's all they represent. And then you have supervisors that are hired by the film industry, you know, the production companies that make the films and the series, that they just go find what that project needs, you know, best interest of the project. I felt like there needed to be a middle guy, you know, or, or a middle service. And that, that's, that's ultimately what I've tried to turn Music Clerk into is, is, be, is, is an opportunity and a place for both sides to be able to come when they need it. Uh, it's not a it's not an original idea. There have been music libraries for many years uh, that kind of sit in between. Uh, it's always independent music. But the one major difference is kind of twofold. I approached it in being making a point to help podcasters early on, especially from a clearance level and a, and a sync level, because it wasn't really well understood how music was was supposed to license and work with podcasting early on, especially existing popular music or semi-popular music. Because a lot of podcasting was audio only, people thought, well, it's, it's like radio. All you need is, is you know, performance uh, licensing. And that's, that's not true. It's, it's exactly like film that, that we've all learned you know, in time. It's kind of developed to the point to where you have to sync music uh, from a licensing perspective with podcasts the same as you do film or television. Uh, so, you know, helping, helping people navigate that, that was one of my big goals, uh, for, for, for the podcast. World. And out of, mm-hmm. out of curiosity, when did you start music clerk? Just want to sort of put this in context. Four years ago. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the original birth of music clerk. Uh, I, we, we were fully up and running, uh, in, in 2019 and kind okay. of, Kind Good of time to be fully up. And yes, running. yes, absolutely. <laughs> because prior to that, I was doing a lot of music promotion from digital perspective. And that completely collapsed when March came around of last year, along with a lot of things. But oh, yeah, that was one that was hit very hard. If, if you can't mm-hmm. tour a, a, an album, you can't promote anything. So there's no point. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of things stopped along with what I was doing. So that even though I was roughly a year into really trying to develop the brand and developed the concept I had to quickly shift everything over to it and focus on nothing but trying to turn it into a business that was actually profitable or at least breaking even to, to reach profitability. Uh, so, so yeah, and that, that early effort led to me jumping in headfirst with an independent film project called Alberto and the Concrete Jungle. Uh, this was a very, very cool film by uh, Chris Shiojima, the director based in New York. He's uh, over, over the past few years, he's won a lot of uh, Vimeo staff picks and, and a lot of awards through that platform, as well as uh, just, just being a great, talented director and, and filmmaker. He, he, early, he, he and I had a chance to talk early on. The film was pretty much finished at that point, but he really needed some help on the supervision and clearance side. I was able to step in and and kind of kind of pick up the pieces from where they were at at that point, and we were able to clear some <clears throat> great music for the film along with what original compositions have been created. So the film went on into the festival circuit and did really well. It won quite a few awards, including a, a best film at the, the New York Film Festival. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. And then early this year, 
even though it wasn't nominated, it qualified for Oscar nominations. So that was kind of a huge thing. Wow. <laughs> out <laughs> out of a lot huge. of other films. Uh, <laughs> that, for that to be the first kind of official film that Music Clerk brought in, you know, from an independent perspective. Gotta to, like that. To run that track was was a pretty fun little journey with everyone involved. Fantastic. Uh, and then that led into my podcast work. And that's where we've kind of, you know, are, are at at this point, I would say. I've had an opportunity to work with Spoke Media based here in Dallas, their mm -hmm. original podcast production company. Uh, those guys are amazing, extremely talented from the ground up, from conception all the way to completion. They they do pretty amazing scripted podcast concepts. They they work with everyone from Spotify to Wondery to Audible to Wow Paramount yeah. Paramount to Sony Music to Netflix to all the all those guys. That's fantastic. A lot, a lot of great relationships. Yeah, they brought us. They brought my my company in uh, early on for music help. And along the way, they were like, hey, do you know any great audio editors and sound designers? And I said, actually, I do. I know a couple of guys in Nashville that I think uh -huh. we should we should go talk to. So we had a good conversation with those guys and they decided to kind of partner up with myself, my company, Music Clerk, and Spoke hired us for our first podcast project, which was called Power the Maxwells. Uh, that is narrated and executive produced by Tara Palmieri. She's a very well-known journalist, previously with ABC News. Uh, she's currently with Politico. Uh, that Power of the Maxwells, it basically tells the story behind the life of Jelaine, Jelaine Maxwell, who a lot of people know as the very close associate to Jeffrey Epstein. Mm. And it also kind of goes deep into her relationship with her father, Robert Maxwell, who's a notoriously known uh, media mogul in the UK. He's basically the Rupert Murdoch of of Europe. <laughs> and, mm, yeah, okay. Next to Rupert, I would say. Wow, uh, yeah. So yeah, it's a really, really interesting true crime podcast, original idea that, that uh, did really well right out of the gate uh, from a critical standpoint. What do you think the, the music that you're putting into these productions, what do you think it lends to these productions like is it Actually, something that I, i'm sorry i didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you i'm just like no no i, I just wanted i'm curious as to because i know that a lot of people think about this as an afterthought like it's not the thing that they build around it's the thing they add on later and so sure. i'm wondering from your perspective how does that end up working? Do they always call you after they've already finished everything else? Or, you know, are you in on the production? Are you there when they're talking about their sound design? How does that usually work? T typically, what I experience is they will have, you know, directors, producers will have an idea and sometimes even, even the composers will be involved in the conversation, original composers for, for a project, even for podcasts have an idea of the type of music they want. Sometimes they'll know exactly the some of the titles they would love to get, but they don't know from a budget perspective if it's even possible. Uh, so I have those, I tend to a lot of times have those early conversations with them. Even though we're nowhere near the post-production point of the project where it's really calling for anything. I always say, hey, go ahead and tell me, you know, what you're thinking, because I can start kind of start the clearance process of reach, finding out who owns all the rights to the music that they're interested in or going and finding resources for the type of music they're interested in and really start that clearance process early. Because what a lot of directors and producers 
sometimes aren't aware of or, or realizing, even if they've experienced it, is the length of the process it can take to clear just one song. How long does it usually take? It, it can take anywhere from two weeks to three months. It just depends. Oh, my goodness. It depends okay. on a lot of factors. Who, who are the owners, you know, from a, from a publishing standpoint and from a, uh, the, the actual song itself, you know, who's the label that owns the, the master rights to the song, the master recording. Uh, so, so depending on how quickly they'll reply, depending on a lot of times I get into scenarios to where one publisher thinks they own a certain percentage, but the other, another publisher says, no, we own this much. And they end up looking at each other like they're not sure who owns what. So there's, there's a long journey that takes place there to where you basically have to kind of backtrack and look at who bought what, when wow. from a catalog perspective to figure it out. And unfortunately, a lot of times the publishers are not willing to do that for you. So it falls on my uh, shoulders to figure it out. Well, so I, I have to ask that's a lot of what they're paying for, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, that's a big it, job, it, though. <laughs> yes, yes. It's 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 a very it's a very tangled web. Hmm. A lot of times, sometimes it's very easy. People know exactly what they what they own, and mm -hmm. everyone agrees that that's what everyone owns. And uh, you get a quote, and your your project says. Yes, that's great. Or no, we need it a little bit lower. And I go back and I renegotiate and try to figure out from a term perspective mm -hmm. or an option perspective, meaning maybe you only do it for two years and then there's an option to pick up three more, five more, 10 more, whatever the case may be to make it more affordable for the project. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a big job, though. Like you were saying, that's, uh, you know, the research alone. <laughs> yes. Just figuring all of that out. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time. Until next time.